We'll open up to Matthew chapter 6, and I have a couple of misunderstandings to clear up. The first one is that I don't wear makeup. I do wear makeup. That's not what I meant to say. I'm sorry if I did. I know some of you are like, how are her lashes naturally clumping together then? Um, I do wear makeup. What I intended to say was that I'm not good at it. See, I live in this place, like I came from the beach where nobody cares, and then I went to the farm where nobody cares, and then I went back to the beach where nobody cares, and now I'm like in the desert, which is a bunch of retired people from Orange County, and everybody cares. And yeah, and your face melts anyway. See, again, Lori told you we can hear everything. And your face melts anyway. And, and you know, like eyeliner, I'll have like one thick line over here and a thin line over here. And then it's going like this down here. That's what I meant to say is that I try. I just need to take a class or something like that. And also, I told you last night that the last night's study was supposed to be today's study. But then somebody told me that it was actually in order in the notebook. So I was going by the Holy Spirit spirit when I taught that study last night, just not when I numbered them in my iPad. So yay. (laughs) Well, with all that, we should probably pray. (laughs) Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we are so in love with you. Lord, I always feel like Sunday mornings are like the, the icing on the cake. God, you have done so much in our hearts and lives already. Truly, Lord, you are an abundant God in every sense of the word. And the fact that we can now come here one last time and meet with you, oh, Jesus, it's just too much. And then the fact that it doesn't even end here, but that you want to continue to meet with us. Lord, would you truly be our identity? Would you be our satisfaction? Would you be our one magnificent obsession? Lord, would we seek you with all that we are because there is nothing else that is worth finding besides you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what is your identity? What are you known for? What do you desire to be known for? I was telling you last night that my parents are missionaries in Israel. And somehow it seems like the majority of the world knows them. And so when, when people would find, oh, hi, you're Christy. Oh, that's so sweet. And then they find out you're Pat Apple's daughter. You're Pat Apple's daughter? Oh, that's so exciting. I just absolutely love her. And then now everybody loves my husband. And they find out that I'm Jason Duff's wife. You're Jason Duff's wife? Oh, I love him. He's just so great. And I don't know if you've ever seen those cardboard testimonies, you know, where the women will write out like who they were and what they are now. You know, they'll write out and come and stand before an audience. I, I was an adulteress and now I'm faithfully married by the grace of God. And you know, I sometimes feel like my cardboard testimony is I was Pat Apple's daughter and now I'm Jason Duff's wife. And that's, you know, my cardboard testimony is that's what it is. So what is your identity? What are you known for? The disciples saw in Jesus a love for prayer. They come to him in Matthew chapter 6 and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's interesting to us because we do see those few passages where he goes alone with the Father and he gets alone and he prays. But I would think if I was talking to Jesus, I would maybe want to say, teach me how to teach. 
or teach me how to heal, or teach me how to love people, or teach me how to make a whip and whip the tables and Pharisees, because that sounds kind of fun sometimes. I would think, teach me how to do these things, but the disciples saw that Jesus had identified himself as one who saw the importance to pray. And in Matthew chapter 6, they ask him, teach us how to pray. And in verse 9, he says, "Um, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We are to pray your kingdom come. Your kingdom come is to be our identity here on earth. We see that the spirit says, come into my kingdom. The bride says, come into my kingdom. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And when you and I pray until all of that happens, we are to pray your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You and I will only be satisfied on earth when our identity is that of his kingdom here on earth, of his kingdom being our sole obsession, of his presence being our desire and satisfaction. I love this quote from Anne Voskamp. She said, when your identity is in Christ, your identity is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Criticism can't change it. Failing can't shake it. Lists can't determine it. When your identity is in the rock, your identity is rock solid. As long as God is for you, it doesn't matter what mountain rises ahead of you. You aren't your yesterday. You aren't your messes. You aren't your failures. You aren't your brokenness. You are brave enough for today because he is. You are strong enough for what's coming because he is. And you are enough for all that is because he always is. It is only in having our satisfaction and identity in Jesus alone that you and I can find contentment and be truly useful here on earth. When we're satisfied with him alone, it doesn't matter what we have. It doesn't matter what we don't have. It doesn't matter who knows us, who knows our name. It doesn't matter what we are known for. We'll be satisfied regardless because we are satisfied in him. Regardless of what we have accomplished, regardless of where we come from, regardless of what we do, when we are satisfied in Jesus, we will be fully satisfied in this life. It always makes me laugh when people ask what my credentials are. (laughs) Basically, they're asking, do you have the authority to do this? Do you have the authority to teach what you're teaching? I'm just like, no. Would you like to know my credentials? Unlike Lindsay, I did go to Calvary Bible College. I went to Calvary Bible College <laughs> to their two-year program that they have there. I went for five years and never graduated. <laughs> 
they said ring by spring and I just kept going thinking, what spring? Like, come on. And finally I did. I met my husband and stopped going. <laughs> Those are my credentials. That's what I'm known for. When people want to see my degree, oh, I don't have one. <laughs> I graduated from Calvary Chapel Vista in a class of 12 as salutatorian because most of the other kids were on drugs somehow. <laughs> I wasn't as smart as a smart kid, but I never did drugs. That's my claim to fame. You and I know that his kingdom is coming and that that is our true home. But don't we sometimes get distracted on this earth? Don't we sometimes forget and we feel this pressure to be something? We feel this pressure to look a certain way, to act a certain way. Oh, they're so cute. I'm going to try to emulate them instead of finding contentment and satisfaction in who we are in Jesus alone. It is only the love of Jesus that can make us feel fully loved. It is only looking like Jesus that can make us truly beautiful in this world. And it is only following after him that can bring us a true satisfaction. In Matthew chapter 8, it says, a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 22. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This little chunk of scripture is so interesting to me because you see one disciple who seems to be pursuing Jesus Jesus for what he could gain from him because Jesus responds to him, you want to follow me? I have nothing. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to not be one of those people who brings your pillow everywhere that you go? (laughs) I say this as I have to go pick up my sheets and foam cushion of my husband's (laughs) as soon as we're done with this. And then you see the other one who would only pursue Jesus with all that he was after he had gotten all that this world could offer him. He said, let me first bury my father, meaning let me first wait until my father dies so I can get his inheritance and then I'll follow after you. So you have on the one hand, this one who's following Jesus for the gain of it all. And then you have the other one who's following Jesus only when it's comfortable for him. And neither one of those will work. We follow Jesus because of who he is. I had such an interesting conversation a few months ago. Somebody said to me, knowing that I'm supposed to be gluten-free, I don't have celiacs, but I just get a rash. And sometimes it's worth it. And sometimes it's not. (laughs) I ate the croissant. I ate the brownie. And now my hands are itchy. It was worth it. And... (laughs) And I was talking to this girl from our church, and you know, we are kind of still so new there. And, and she said to me, oh, Sprouts is having a great sale on gluten-free food. And I said, okay, great. And I saw her a couple days later, and she said, did you go get it? And I said, no, I have to wait until the first of the month when I have money. And she goes, but you're in ministry. <laughs> and I thought, when did being in ministry start to identify with you have money to buy groceries whenever you want? Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. And when you and I forget that, 
when we forget that this world is not our home. When we forget and we start to pursue this world and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life for what we can get out of it, or we're going to follow Jesus as soon as we're comfortable, oh, we will be in a mess. True satisfaction can seriously be found in lack of possession if we are following Jesus with all that we are and chasing after him. Do we understand what it means that we have been adopted by God, brought into his family, made co-heirs? What? I mean, I could totally settle for being in God's family as a second-class citizen. That would make sense to me. It still wouldn't make sense because I would be thinking, how in the world am I even in this family? The second-class citizen part would make sense to me, or the servant girl or slave girl. But Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. You and I have been made co-heirs with Jesus. We have become part of his family. We are his children. We no longer need to go to those other places that we used to seek satisfaction and fulfillment and identity in. We can run to Jesus. Maybe you used to run to friends, to alcohol, to substance, to relationships, to TV, to social media, to cutting, or to shopping. God says, you don't need any of that junk anymore. You run to me. Like we talked about Friday night, I think it was, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower that we have all that we need in Jesus, all that we need for life and godliness. We can run to him for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you and I seek fulfillment and satisfaction from other places, don't our circumstances always get worse? Don't we always get more filled with sorrow? And doesn't that often make you want to pull back and withdraw? I'm not a very confrontational person. My husband and I have really like maybe gotten in two, three fights in 18 years because I like just kind of go into this quiet world that he calls the crockpot wife of just I'm sitting there quietly stewing and I'm (laughs) polite and nice enough but I'm stewing and I'm quietly getting hot and we often just want to pull back and withdraw or maybe you're one of those people who actually can say what you want to say and I've always wanted to be one of those people but at the same time you terrify me because I've dealt with you And when we go through rough circumstances, difficult situations, we want to pull back either in like this, oh my goodness, you hurt me or I'm so done with you. And Jesus wants us to stay in this life for his kingdom with our all. But in our mind, it makes sense. If this person was out of my life, my life would be so easy right now. So they just need to be done. And it can be confusing, can't it? It can be confusing when you're chasing after Jesus with all that you are and difficult circumstances come into your life. It doesn't always make sense because the mindset of this modern day church and maybe everyday church, but this is the only church we know, right? Unless you're big on church history and I was engaged during church history, so I don't know. (laughs) But the mindset seems to be that God saved us to make us happy. Isn't that why people divorce? So I'm not happy. Isn't that why children don't like their parents? Oh, I'm not happy. 
Isn't that why we switch jobs, switch careers, switch families? Oh, I'm not happy. And it seems that if we were seeking to come and be satisfied in Jesus alone, then the red carpet would be rolled out by God. Like he would say to us, you want to seek me with all that you are? Let me lay this carpet down so you don't hurt your precious little sensitive feet as you chase after me with all that you are. But the red carpet isn't rolled out. And it's often a difficult and narrow path that you and I walk. And I love what Corey Ten Boom says. She says, God never sets us on a rocky path without giving us strong shoes. But there are those rocky paths that you and I walk on, aren't there? It's like exercise to look the way you want. I can declare, I want to be healthy and fit. It's the best way to live, but it's not the easiest. I already told you, I don't like exercise. I walked on a treadmill because I'm not fitting into my pants very well currently, like I told you yesterday. And now my leg hurts. My hip is aching. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Don't do it anymore. Eat the brownies, eat their croissants, get the rashes, and buy new clothes or wear big puffy dresses like I am right now. It's great. It's great. Walking fully consecrated with God takes discipline and diligence and a choice. It's like this secret place that he has that we press into, but it's like a view at the top of a hike. Out in the desert, they're kind of known for their hiking, which I had no idea. I'm thinking, who's known for their hiking in a hot place? But... There's really beautiful eight months, and there's a hike up to the cross that you can do. And I did it one time when we hadn't lived there for too long, and it was beautiful. You get up there, and there's this giant cross. And the view of the valley is just the most amazing view that I've ever seen. And when I was up there, I said, oh, we're doing this all the time. That was my only time. (laughs) Why? Because it's hard work. It takes discipline. It takes planning. It takes shoes and clothes and yoga pants and things like that that I don't do. It's a beautiful view when you get up there, but it's a lot of work to get there. It's a lot of work to hike there. And you and I are saved by grace and loved unconditionally by God. And our salvation is not dependent upon anything that we do But our consecration and the amount that we desire to press into Jesus and be identified with him is absolutely dependent upon how much of our flesh we're willing to let God cut away and how much of him that we're willing to chase. It takes an obedience and a continued walk when the path seems too hard to continue. And the easiest way, again, in a sense, is to kind of pull back. It is to cut everyone off who makes life difficult. And maybe you've encountered those people. They're like the hatchets. That's what I call them, you know. You offend them. And they cut you off. One of the best things that I heard was at a pastor's conference one time, and and the guy was talking about how the Bible says that offenses will come. And he was a pastor, and he said, I offend people, and they leave. People offend me, and they stay. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) 
There's people that you love and you offend and they're like hatchets. And their motto is, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not doing that again. And part of me really sometimes wants to be like that. Like I honestly, when I'm not walking in the spirit, sometimes I think, I'm really going to let them know by my face that they made me mad. <laughs> I'm just going to quietly crock pot walk by them and just... Oh, I didn't quite see you there. But God doesn't let me be like that. (laughs) I just can't get away with it. God doesn't let me get away with things like that. He made me forgetful. I remember writing into some people. And my sweet husband afterward, you know, after we were all talking, and my sweet husband afterward, we're walking away, and he says, I'm so proud of you for how you handled that. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, after how mean they were to your parents, I was like, I forgot! so mad. (laughs) There's other times he tells me, go give that person a hug. And I'm like, no, 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 don't make me. And I just can't even handle that like separation from God. And so I go hug them and go say hi. But the most important thing for you and I to remember, because honestly, isn't our problem with people when we forget to be satisfied in Jesus alone? Isn't our problem with people is that it shakes who we thought we were, that we maybe thought that we were closer friends than that, that we maybe thought that they would want to be our friends so bad that they would never dare to treat us like that, that we maybe thought we were more important than somebody who could be treated like that. The reason that we have a problem with people is that it shakes who we think we are because sometimes we think we are something forgetting that we're nothing, forgetting that the only something that we are is found in our identity as a child of God, as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, it's not the people that you and I wrestle against. It's our flesh. It's what our flesh thinks about the way that that person treated us, about the way that that person talked to us, about the way that that person made us feel. Our fight is not with them. Our fight is with our flesh. When we were at family camp, thank you, thank you. (laughs) I know it wasn't for me. It's okay. When we were at family camp, I'm just going to tell you, I don't handle drama well. Um, I, always, I always hope that I don't handle drama well. And then sometimes reading that story about like the plank in your own eye, like it makes me kind of nervous. I'm like, do I not handle drama well because I create it and I don't see it? <laughs> I don't think that's the case. But either way, because it's my plank eye or it's just because I don't like it, I don't handle drama well, whatever reason it is. And, and there's this person, you know those people, maybe you're one of those people, knock it off, um, <laughs> where you never quite know what they think about you that day. You know, sometimes you walk up to them, hey, it's so good to see you, and they hug you, and then you walk up to them, and they're like, hi, and they walk away, and you just never quite know what you did, what happened, what went wrong, and then at some unknown, created in their mind time, they decide that they're not mad at you anymore, and then suddenly you're fine. 
And I have this person that I was dealing with at family camp in that way. And I had just been trying so hard. And, and it breaks my heart because I don't like to be at odds with people. And so it's hard for me to focus on anything else. And I want to focus on it. And God keeps saying, focus on me. And I'm like, but she's mad at me. And I don't know what I did. And I'm thinking, didn't I already do this in sixth grade? <laughs> I'm almost 40. I'm too tired for this. Like, I don't remember what you did. You shouldn't remember what I did. Just stop. And I was dealing with this at family camp, just thinking, you know what? It's been almost two years right now. I'm done. I saw her up in the game room. Hi, and we were fine. And then I saw her down in the volleyball court, and she's mad. And then I saw her over in the pool, and she's great. And then I saw her in the sanctuary, and she's upset. And I'm like, I can't handle this whole yo-yo thing. Like, this is not okay. And I just said what so many of us say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm pulling back. I'm not dealing with this drama. This is not of the Lord. You know, we can spiritualize it. This is not God. (laughs) I'm thinking, you want to be my friend? Just be easy to be around. (laughs) I just want to have fun, talk about Jesus, and drink coffee. (laughs) Don't they remember the song that girls just want to have fun? Sorry, I don't listen to secular music, but I studied in a coffee shop with 80s music on. And I'm thinking, yes, I'm typing. Yes, girls just want to have fun. (laughs) Nobody's got time for this. And I got into the sanctuary after saying the words, I'm done. I think I even said it to my husband. I'm done. I'm so done with her. I'm so done. I'm not doing this anymore. And the worship started. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm just going to live above the drama and love Jesus. Live above the drama. And the worship started, and as worship starts so often, when God's like, all right, it's time to correct so much in your heart. (laughs) Let's start with this part, and we're going to weed that out. Start with this part. And he said, you can live above the drama, but you can't live above her. You can't live above her. You don't have that luxury of deciding that you're done with her. I decide when you're done with her. I decide when you're done with her drama. You don't get that luxury of that choice. And I'm thinking, okay, okay, but maybe I'm hearing you wrong. (laughs) It is worship. You know those worshipers, like they're so emotional. So maybe it's just emotional. And then the Bible says starts, and he says, open up to Romans. And he starts talking about how God pursued us and chased after us. And while we were still sinners, how he loved us. And I'm sitting there, okay, okay, okay. I'll be nice to her. And that was the nighttime session. And I just ran and got my niece and ran to the room. And actually, I went to the game room and was there until midnight. But anyway, I didn't see her. And so I didn't have to apply what God told me to do yet. And I woke up the next morning and all my family was sleeping still and, you know, nothing wears you out quite like family camp and retreats. And I made my coffee and I snuck out onto the balcony with my Bible and I was just praying and I was like, Lord, I know what you told me to do last night. I know you told me that I can't be done with her. I know you told me that it's, it's worse than that, that not only can I not be done with her, but that I actually have to chase her and pursue her. And at the same time, I know that you know that she scares me and annoys me. So I don't know how to do this. And it was one of those times where, you know, I'm saying it's almost breakfast. 
like those times where you sit with God and you say, I know what you're telling me to do. I have heard your will. I will do it. But you've got like two hours to change my heart and show me how to do this. Like there's a time limit on this. You've got like two hours to teach me how to do this. And I opened where I was reading and I was reading in Romans 6 that day. And it said, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that you, though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And I was praying and just saying, Okay, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down, but what exactly are you saying here? And he said, I don't care if you feel it, you do it. You do it. Because you used to be slaves of your feelings. You used to be slaves of the opinions of what people thought about you. And then Paul says, I use human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. We've got to talk about this in simple terms because you're not going to get it or you're going to make loopholes. That's what Paul's saying here. God through Paul is saying to our human flesh, which he created. And he understands our weaknesses. And he's saying, just as you were a slave to your anger, a slave to your bitterness, maybe you wanted to be nice to a person, but you were just so mad that you couldn't. So now... You present yourself as a slave of righteousness. That whether you feel this or not, you just do it. You obey it. You walk in my way because your satisfaction is not found in them, how they treat you, or what you think of them, or what they think of you. Your satisfaction is found in me alone. And one of my favorite characters in the Bible is in Genesis, and it's Enoch. And Hebrews tells us that he had this testimony that he pleased God. And what having a testimony of pleasing God is, is being a slave of righteousness. That annoyance, that I'm doneness, I'm sure that's a word, I'm done, that was when we were slaves of sin. That was when we were slaves of our flesh, slaves of our emotions. We had no control. But now, now we're to put on love. We're to put on tender mercies. We're to put on kindness. There are so many days where I do not feel like getting dressed in the morning. I am a homeschool mom at heart, and now I have to take my children somewhere five days a week. And I'm not one of those moms who drops their kids off while I'm in my jammies, because there's so many people who go to our church who are at that school, and there's always these counseling appointments. And when I'm in my jammies with no makeup on, I can hardly think about what they're talking about. And so I put on my clothes in the morning, whether I want to or not, because it's probably a good thing to do. I don't care how we feel in this room. We are slaves of righteousness. And God tells us to put on love. And this morning I read 1 Corinthians 13. And you girls know it, that love is patient. 
Love is kind. Love thinks no evil, rejoices in the truth. Um, and there's so many other things that really as a Christian of 30-something years, I should totally know by heart, but just can't think of right now. Maybe that's my problem. God said to me, you're a slave of righteousness. And that means that when your flesh creeps up and says, I'm so done with her, you tell it that it's not your master to back off and to shut its mouth, that you're putting on love, that your new master, Jesus, he gives you the ability to do what he calls you to do. And I was left there that morning just praying, oh God, I hear your voice, but please consume me until there is nothing left of my flesh and my pride and my weariness and seeking satisfaction in anything but Jesus. This life is not to make us happy. This life is to bring us joy. And that joy comes from the fullness of his presence. And it comes more and more as our flesh is consumed and we're more fully surrendered to him. This life is to shape our character. This life is to cause us to change from glory to greater glory, to shape us, to conform us into his nature. His kingdom come. His will be done. He loved those people who put him on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And as I was praying about the how, okay, I've heard you. I'm going to be a slave of righteousness. Now, what exactly does this entail? Do I buy her like a little half heart necklace from Claire's that says, be fry, stand, you know, I mean, like the best friend things that go together. How far do I have to walk in this? And God said with such compassion and love, but with just a little bit of sarcasm, and it's actually much the way I parent, which I really appreciate it because I speak that language. He said, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. And isn't that what he says in Hebrews? And I'm thinking all of a sudden, okay, true. I'm not praying and agonizing in a garden with blood coming out of my pores like you did because this is so hard. I'm just annoyed that someone would treat me like that which again goes back to the core of what it is. When we are fully satisfied with who we are in Jesus, it doesn't matter how people treat us. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians in that chapter that maybe we don't like where he's talking about not being mad at somebody for this, not taking them to court for that. But he said, you're children of God. Why not just be wronged? Why not just let them treat you like that? Of all people in this world who should be okay with being wronged, it should be us Christians. Of all people in this world who are okay with being treated poorly, it should be us Christians. Because Jesus said, don't be surprised. They treated me like this. Why wouldn't they treat you like that? He warns us all throughout here. But maybe you're like me and you don't really read directions. And that's kind of a direction thing. But when you and I realize the fullness that we have in Christ, the satisfaction that can be found in being identified as His alone, When you and I have the mindset of thy kingdom come, thy will be done, well, then it's going to flip because we're not going to walk into a relationship wondering what we're going to get out of them and what they can offer us. But you and I walk into a relationship with the fullness of Christ saying, I've got everything I need. How can I help you? What can I give you? 
How can I treat you today so that you can feel loved, so that you can feel full, so that you can feel your identity is in Christ? When you and I are content with who God has made us to be, when we're done looking at everybody else, when we're done thinking about the way that people treat us, when our satisfaction and fulfillment is found not in what we own, not in how we look, but how we are in Jesus alone, when we're focused on having that testimony that Enoch pleased God, there's no end to the contentment that we can have. There's that verse that says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And I always thought that meant, you know, the more godly that you were, the greater your contentment was. And like, you know, Lindsay was talking about, we have this tendency to want to muster up the fruit and and to produce it ourselves, and we strive in it. And so I would strive to create this godliness in my life so that I could find contentment. But you know what that word godliness in that verse actually means? to be in awe of God. And what it's saying is that to the extent that you are in awe of God is the extent that you will be content. Because when we realize what we have in him, what else would we want? I mean, seriously, have you ever had that person that you have to buy for, that they have everything? We have the sweetest people in our church. And they live on a lake, and their house is like, you could fit like 45,000 of my houses in there. I don't know. And they're just, you know, they've got their own jet, and they've got their everything. I mean, just amazing people, so down to earth, so humble. And my son walks up to them and says, hey, I was thinking that maybe I could have my birthday party at your house, and you could take us all water skiing. And I was like... One of those times you wish you had a leash and a muzzle for your 13-year-old. No. <laughs> and she was so sweet and so gracious, and we somehow ended up doing it. She texted me, and she kept texting me because I was like, we're not doing it. She kept texting, when are we having Jonathan's birthday party here? When are we having Jonathan's birthday party here? And I wanted to buy her a gift, and I'm thinking, what do you buy? And I'm walking around Hobby Lobby. <laughs> What do you, do I buy a Starbucks gift card? Do they use gift cards? I don't, like I just, I don't know. I'm so far from that, even though I'm in ministry. I'm so <laughs> far from that. <laughs> but literally, that's how you and I should be. We have everything. All we need for life and godliness. This world should be walking around us thinking, what would I ever have to offer them? They've got everything. You and I need to find our satisfaction in him alone. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think there's any arguments in heaven. When God says something, I assume they do it right away. So his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This isn't our home. And he wants to remind us of that. He shapes our lives so that we will remember that. If we didn't go through difficult circumstances, would we come to him as passionately as we do? 
don't you wonder that? I wish we would. It'd be nice to think that we would. It'd be nice if like, you know, trials drew us farther from God and luxury drew us closer. It'd be great, wouldn't it? But that's just not the case. Remember when Moses found God at the burning bush? And I love that it said that, that God, when he saw that Moses turned aside, God called to him from the bush. Just another thing about our busyness. Will we take that time to turn aside? Because what if Moses had just kept on walking? Maybe somebody else would have turned aside. I don't know. But God gives him this great, tremendous calling. And Moses is just sitting there apprehensive like any of us would be. And he says, who should I say sent me? And God says to him, tell them I am. And I imagine Moses waiting for the rest of the sentence. (laughs) I am. It's like living in Texas. I don't know if you talk to Southern people. It's so slow. I think it's because it's so hot. (laughs) They just have to kind of talk slow. And I imagine Moses just thinking, I am what? You know, we read it in the English and there's a seeming lack in what God is saying that he would be. There's a seeming lack, but there's not a lack. There's a flexibility and a fullness. What God was saying is he was saying, I am the ego in me, the becoming one. I am what you need me to be. Moses, when you walk into Egypt and you're dealing with all the plagues, I am all the power that you need me to be. When you are walking in the wilderness, listening to their complaining and and whining, I am all the patience that you need me to be. When you're in the desert and you're thirsty and you don't have water or food, I am all the provision that you need me to be. God was saying to Moses, I am the becoming one. I become who you need. And you girls have heard this, but it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, where Jesus comes manifested as God, and he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. But the thing about this world is that if there was never a lack, we wouldn't know how much we needed him. If we never hunger, we'll never long to be satisfied by the bread of life alone. If we never experience the times of darkness, we will never passionately desire that light of the world. If we've never had those moments where we felt left out, locked out, and uninvited and alone, then we'll never come to him to be our door. If we never feel that those who rule over us in this life are harsh, uncaring, unappreciative, and unthankful, we will never fully appreciate how good of a good shepherd he truly is. If we never feel lost or lied to or have to face the reality of death in some way or another, the death of a friend, the death of a loved one, or the death of a dream, 
we will never fully love the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If we have never felt separated or disconnected or like we're dying on the vine, we will never come and cling to that Jesus who says that he is the vine. We need to feel the lack in our lives to understand the fullness of who he is. That godliness with contentment is great gain. That having that view of God that is so tremendous creates the greatest contentment that you and I could ever find. Because life is funny, isn't it? I've heard it said, that old phrase, the grass is greener on the other side. And he said, often we don't consider that their water bill is higher or maybe they live over a septic tank. (laughs) We don't know why the grass is greener. It makes our dry patch look a little bit better, doesn't it? And this life often is created and shaped and filtered by God, not to be harsh, not to be uncaring, not to be unloving, but to cause us to hunger and thirst after him to cause us to run to him because he knows that we're not going to find fulfillment and satisfaction in anything else that we seek. And so he creates this this journey where we would want to seek him with all that we are. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. And you and I will be filled and we will be satisfied in him but not until we experience the hunger and the thirst. That comes first. And often we don't long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done until we've tried our own way and lived for our own kingdom only to find out that it's as feeble as a sandcastle. He calls us to come so that he can bring us full contentment and satisfaction. He calls us to come so that he can be our identity. So back to the original question, what is your identity? What are you known for? Who are you? Because you know that your character is who you are when nobody is looking, right? And you know that your identity is what people think about you when you aren't around. So what is that? And we know that we should only find our identity in Christ, right? We say that to people. Oh, you'll never be satisfied until you find your identity in Christ alone. But aren't there those tiny little things that creep in that we don't even realize have become our identity? When we moved back to Vista about seven years ago, my identity that I thought was in Christ alone changed in every way. No longer was I a senior pastor's wife which I didn't realize that I found my identity in that, but apparently I did because it bothered me to go to the pastor's wives conference and have somebody say, oh, you're just an assistant pastor's wife. I don't know why they say that. I wouldn't be able to function without my assistant pastor's wives. What do you mean just? Oh, you're just that. You're just the hero of the church. (laughs) No longer was I in charge of women's ministry. I didn't get to cast a vision. I didn't get to give direction. I wasn't asked to counsel. To top it all off, I felt like God telling me to take a break from women's ministry. I didn't teach a Bible study for a year and a half. I'm sure it should be like riding a bike, but it wasn't. The first time I got back up there, I was like, I don't know that I know how to do this. My kids who had been homeschooling, they went to school for a year. So I was suddenly no longer homeschooling. 
And me, who had taught so many Bible studies about having your identity in Christ alone, suddenly had no idea who I was. I had no idea. It was all taken. And I had no choice but to come to him with all that I was. And have you had those times where you just felt shelved? Like you felt like God took you and just put you up there? And maybe he's going to remember that you're there? And you don't quite know what you did wrong? And you have to walk through this season of being forgotten? We've got a lot of widows in our church. And I know that that's how you feel sometimes. You feel forgotten. Suddenly it's this necessity of people thinking about you, not in, oh, I hope I get to see them, but oh, I've got to take care of them. I've got to help them. I've got to do something. And your identity changes. There's so many things that can cause our identity to change. We get laid off or the ministry changes and we're no longer needed. Suddenly it's the younger ones who are coming in and they're pushing the older ones out. There's so many things, and I know that's not just ministry, it's in jobs also. Maybe your kids have all grown up and graduated and you're left thinking, well, now what? Now what do I do? There's so many things in this life that keep our identity from changing. In Revelation chapter 2, and we talked about this a little bit in one of the studies, But just in more detail, he says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." He who has an ear, let him hear today. Let her hear today that sometimes as well-meaning, well-intentioned, fruitful as it is, that you and I can accidentally desire to be known for our busyness, for our ministry, for our importance, for our title, for our friends, for our family, for how much we're needed as opposed to simply being known as a daughter of the living God and finding our full satisfaction in Him. And we think that we're known for these great things and it doesn't start out like that ever. It doesn't start out like that. You're a loving mom. You're a loving daughter. You're a caring cousin. You're an aunt that wants to pour into people. You're somebody who just wants to mentor others in the church. You're somebody who wants to help out in children's ministry. You're good at typing like Sally was. You're good at these things and it starts out serving God. But then we kind of start to get known for that, right? We start to kind of like the people who come alongside. Oh, you would know. Can I ask you? Yes, I might know. 
And we think that we're known for these great things. But Jesus just wants us to be known for him. Because he knows that this world is passing away. And that it's only he that remains. And often he strips us of these titles and identities. Not to be mean, but to show us that we're so much more than we ever thought we were. And in the beginning, it feels like he's showing us that we're so much less than we thought that we were. But it's just the opposite. He wants to show us you are so much more than you think that you are. So much more. You don't have to do that to be special to me. You don't have to be that to be loved in this world. When we think that ministry or parenting or relationships or jobs depend on us, it can be terrifying, can't it? When we remember that all we have is His and that we are His alone and our identity is in Him alone, how freeing it is. When we come to realize that we're nothing without Him, it's so freeing. And that morning, dealing with that, that girl at this family camp and remembering that I have freedom to be who I am in Christ, it was beautiful. But it was a choice. And I loved what Sally said yesterday. Enough of keeping it real. Enough. There is nowhere in the Bible that God says, keep it real. <laughs> He did not create this t-shirt. He did not create this hashtag of keep it real. He didn't save us to keep us real. He saved us to change us and to mold us into his own image. And I understand what people are saying. I understand that there's, you know, so many people out there who are fake and, and who have this false identity. And I get that, but that should be a world's thing not a church thing. That should be their thing. They don't have much to cling to. Let them have the hashtag. That's not ours. That's not what we have. We have, we have thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We have, if I kept it real, I wouldn't be invited here. We have, if you kept it real, we wouldn't sit by you. Who we really are is not who God wants us to really be. We've been given the Holy Spirit. It drives me crazy. Sorry, I'm almost done, but I just have to say this really quick, and it's so not in my notes, so watch out because I'm going off. <laughs> Sorry. It's my last one. I don't have anything else to do. I just got to go get my sheets, turn in my key. <laughs> Both keys, so I don't quite know what box that goes in. And I think we already paid for it anyway. Maybe I'll just keep it. <laughs> Can I just say that we are in such a dangerous place with grace in this church age? That when you hear people doing things or see people compromising, they say, Grace. When you confront somebody about something, they say, Grace. There is nowhere in the Word of God where grace means it's okay to keep doing what you're doing because God loves you anyway. And yet that is the definition that we have somehow taken in this world. Grace, brother. Oh, there's grace for that. As though it's a license, which is, I think, exactly what Paul said, not to let it become. 
It's like a big giant dress to cover up all the places that we're growing all wrong in. And that's not it. Everywhere in the word of God, grace is a power and a force to make you into what you could never be without it. Grace is a gift of God that he gives you to change you into who you could never be on your own. Grace is a game changer. It's like a ninja foot that kicks the prison doors of who you used to be down so that you can be who God wants you to be, who God has created you to be. We don't need to keep it real when God can really help us be formed into his image. We don't need to keep it real when the Holy Spirit helps us to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You and I are different than this sad little world that has that hashtag. So no more. No more Christian cussing. No more compromise. No more cleavage. No more anger, wrath, bitterness, and malice. No more. No more keeping it real of the world because you have what the world does not have. We are different. We're different. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hashtag keep it real. Hashtag grace. No, those don't fit there. Those don't go with that verse. When you and I are identified in Christ alone, we're different. We will be those wives, like Sally said, yes, your first ministry is to your husband. You mommies, your first ministry is to your children. But above all, your first ministry is to God. You are a child of God. And Lord, would we be identified with you alone? No more of these golden calves. No more of these identities. No more of this keeping it real. No more of this grace that lets us stay in this lazy relationship with you. Lord, help us to charge after you, pursue you with all that we are. God, to become all that you need us to be, to declare to this world, your kingdom come. Your will be done. You, Spirit, you say, come. And we join you in that as your bride, and we say, come. And Jesus, thank you that you are coming so soon. Keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.